You are now listening to the October 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have forgiveness, the sermon, and the God of Abraham. First, let's begin with forgiveness. Hello, heart and soul gospel ministry listeners. I am Joseph McDonald, the host of a new program focused on a special privilege we enjoy as Christians. This is Forgiveness. Christians have a very close connection to the concept of forgiveness. We become a Christian when we enter into the state of forgiveness. That means that God has forgiven our sins. What would become of us if God had not forgiven us? That is a very scary thought. It's probably something we don't even want to think about. We would still remain and live in sin, and we would have to reap the consequences of our own sins. But God sent Jesus Christ to the world and had him pay for our sins by dying on the cross. And when we believe in him, our sins are forgiven. There is no one who can become a Christian without God's forgiveness. Without forgiveness, there is no one that can become a child of God. Forgiveness is a fundamental step in becoming a Christian. As such, forgiveness is an integral aspect of being a Christian. Yet, it is something that we find difficult to put into action. While we want others to forgive us, Quite often, we find ourselves having a hard time forgiving others. However, forgiving is something that we must do as Christians. If we don't, the state of unforgiveness will bog us down. It will bind us to the past and hold us back from growing deeper into faith. Through this program, called Forgiveness, I hope we will be able to share the nature of forgiveness and how it affects not just us, but many others around us. Through forgiveness, we become free from those things from the past that bog us down and experience the healing that will lead us closer to Jesus. Is there anyone that you are not able to forgive? As a matter of fact, most of us have at least one or two dark stories from our own past that we keep to ourselves. When we remember them, they cause us pain, but many of us have learned to live with such pain without letting others know. We want to raise the question whether we must keep those dark memories to ourselves and endure them all by ourselves, perhaps even accepting them as our fate. Must we really let them be as they are when they could be harmful to our souls and even our bodies? No, that's not so. If we turn to the Bible, we see characters with a dark past with unresolved issues that require forgiving. The Bible teaches us about forgiveness through the story of Joseph. As many of you know, Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob who was later called Israel. Jacob was Joseph's father, and he had 12 sons and many daughters from four wives. It would be fascinating to think about what kind of life Joseph must have had as a child growing up with his siblings from different mothers. 
What kind of a relationship did he have with his half-brothers? Let's read Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 to 4. It begins with the reference to Jacob, Joseph's father, and then talks about Joseph and his brothers from four other wives that Jacob had. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was a son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. The Bible tells us that Joseph was with his half-brothers while pasturing the flock as a boy of 17 years old. Living with other brothers and sisters from different mothers itself is not healthy from what the Bible teaches us. God clearly designed marriage as a union of one man and one woman, but the house of Jacob was not so. Furthermore, Joseph's half-brothers did wrong things at times, and whenever that happened, Joseph told his father on them. As you might imagine, his brothers did not appreciate that. Further, Jacob loved Joseph over all his other sons. Actually, in Jacob's mind, it was as if Joseph was the only true son. Of the four wives he had, the only wife he loved and wanted to marry was Rachel, and Joseph was the first son Rachel gave him. So, it probably was inevitable that Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons. But it must have been very difficult for the other sons to accept that. Whenever they saw Jacob loving Joseph more, they became jealous and began hating him. So the rest of the brothers became distant and did not even speak to Joseph. To make the matter worse, Joseph had a dream that suggested his brothers, all older than him, would bow down to him one day. Instead of keeping it to himself, he told his brothers about this dream. How do you think that went over with his brothers? Here is Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 through 8. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please, listen to this dream which I have had, for behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Their not-so-great relationship became even worse when Joseph told them about this dream. After hearing about his dream, needless to say, they became angry. They chided Joseph. So, now you're going to become a king and rule over us? And they hated Joseph even more. While all this was happening, Joseph's brothers went to a distant land to pasture their sheep. They were in Shechem, a place far from their home in Hebron. 
Jacob became concerned about how they were doing. Then he did what any father would do. He sent someone to find out how they were getting along. Without thinking too deeply, Jacob fetched Joseph to do this task. He sent his beloved son Joseph to Shechem to check on his brothers. Joseph might have been glad to be on the road. A boy of his age might have welcomed this opportunity to get away from it all. Without being too concerned about how his brothers actually hated him, he set off to Shechem in search of his brothers. What do you think happened to Joseph? What do you think his brothers would do to him? Forgiveness. We will continue next time.
And I hide my eyes with my face to the ground in the presence of your majesty. And I clap my hands and I lay my crowns in the presence of your majesty. And I hide my eyes with my face to the ground in the presence of Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is The Road to Reconciliation. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. We have been talking about Joseph, my hero, probably the man that I think is the greatest except for Jesus in the Bible. He's my hero for a lot of reasons. Last week, we left everything kind of up in the air. What I want to do is do a little bit of a recap. A quick recap will bring us all up to speed, and then we'll move forward. Is that cool with you? So we'll be there. We'll be in the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 44 pretty soon. So Joseph, of course, uh, was in Egypt. He had uh, been uh, brought to become lord of Egypt. The only one who was higher than Joseph was Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave the rulership of Egypt to Joseph after Joseph had interpreted his dreams. The dreams had declared that there would be seven years of plenty in Egypt, seven years of famine, and sure enough, those dreams came true. He put Joseph in charge of the nation's food supply, and with Joseph's wise leadership, there was so much grain, they stopped even measuring it. They built cities for it. So when the famine hit, Egypt was taken care of. 
But the famine went out and it came to other countries around Egypt and way beyond. Finally, it came to the land of Canaan. And these nations were having to come to Egypt and basically say, hey, we'll pay anything, just give us food. And so they were, you know, Egypt really was in control of all the nations that came to them because they controlled their food. Well, came to the land of Canaan, and that's where Joseph's family lived. The land of Canaan, Jacob and his 11 other sons were living there in Canaan. Jacob and his family ran out of food, so they had to send them. I heard there was food in Egypt, so he sent them to Egypt. And he says, hey, I want you to go. Here's some money. Buy grain. So they went to Egypt. Of course, we know who's in Egypt. Joseph's in Egypt. But they have no idea. They think probably by now Joseph's even dead. So they go to Egypt and they have money with them to buy grain. They're not sure whether or not they'll even get to see this man whose name was actually Zaphonath Paneah. That's his Egyptian name, uh, which either means interpreter of dreams or some say it also means savior of the world. So they go to the one who is the savior of the world. And they say, hey, we need food. And instead of just giving him food, he finds out where they're from and he says, no, you're here as spies. No, we're not spies. Yes, you're here to see if we have any weakness in our land because of the famine. You want to come against us. No, we're not spies. We're just men who've... He recognized them, the Bible said, immediately. He knew who they were immediately, but they didn't recognize him. Why? Well, he was a lot older. He was 17 when uh, they had sold him to be a slave. And now he's somewhere around 30, I would say, we'll say 35 to 39 years old right in there. So a lot had changed. Plus, he looks like an Egyptian. He doesn't look like them. Plus, who would have even thought this is our brother? This guy is one of the most powerful people in the world. I'm never going to think that's my brother, right? The one we hate? No, they're not going to think like that. So they say, no, no, we're, we're men sent by our father. And he knew he wanted to know more about their father. He says, well, is your father still alive? He's testing them now. He needs to know, has my family changed? Are my brothers any different? Because Joseph does not have a vindictive heart toward them. Joseph wants to bless them, but they can't receive the blessings until they have changed. You know, it's much of the same way right now. God wants to bless us, but God says, you got to fall into line to be in the sphere of where I can bless you. They had unresolved sin in their lives. Uh, They had guilt in their lives that hadn't been taken care of. And and they couldn't receive blessings, as we'll see. So they said, yeah, we have a father. And he says, well, do you have any more siblings? Do you have another brother? Oh, yeah, we do have a brother, a younger brother. We had another, but he's not, which means he died. And so Joseph, and they had said, we're honest men. We're not spies. Joseph had to be smirking. You're honest men. Oh, sure you are, honest men, you know. So uh, they got the grain. Joseph says, okay, this is what I want you to do. You can go. I'll give you grain. But if you want any more grain, you've got to bring back your youngest brother, the one that you've told me is still alive. 
He might not have believed them. He might have thought that they're just making this up. I don't know. But he insisted on seeing Benjamin, who was the youngest brother. He was his little brother. Also, I believe that he wanted Benjamin there because according to the dreams that God had given him, do you remember that his seven brothers all bowed down to him? Do you remember those dreams? So there were only 10. All 11 needed to be there to bow down to him. So that might have had something to do with it. We can't be sure. They said, oh, no, you know, our, our father would never let that happen because what happened to our, our other brother caused our father such problems and grief that he would never allow Benjamin to come. His heart is, his heart is just bound up with Benjamin. There's no way he would make that possible. Joseph says, if you ever step into Egypt again, if you want grain again, buy the life of Pharaoh, which is like, that's a big deal to say. Don't you dare step into this land or I'm going to paraphrase off with your heads. Okay. That was clear communication, right? So they go back. Oh, before they leave, Joseph said to his personal servant, personal assistant, he says, look, before they leave, I want you to take all the bags of money that they paid for the grain with. I want you to put them, bury them in the bag of wheat that they're taking back with them. So the servant did that. They sent him off on their way. Just not before they got home, uh, they're going through the bags. I don't know why. And they start discovering, oh, our money's here. Our money's here. I got my bag of money. I got mine. I paid for it. What's it doing back? And instead of saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord, this is a blessing, they're going, oh, no. The Bible says they were terrified. The Hebrew word for terrified means you're shaking in your boots. They are freaking out. They go home and they tell their dad, Jacob, what has happened. Jacob was terrified. I want to pause to say one more time that when you have unresolved guilt, you just cannot receive blessings. You're always seeing things from a negative point. You're thinking the hammer is always going to fall on you. Instead of seeing come as a favor from God, you're looking at it in a negative way. And the brothers do this repeatedly. Finally, they begin to run out of food. And they say to their father, Jacob, dad, we need to go back and we need to go to Egypt and we need to get some grain. And their father said, okay, go. And they said, but remember, the man said, if we come back without Benjamin, we're dead. We won't get anything from him unless we take Benjamin with us. Jacob absolutely refused. And so the food stores got lower and lower and lower and lower. They came back to their dad and they said, Dad, we have got to go. You know, you can't take Benjamin. I mean, I lost his brother. He was torn apart by wild beasts. You can't take Benjamin, if he died, you'd send this old man to his grave. Finally, though, he acquiesced and he said, okay, everything's against me. Ever felt that way? We said yes, right? We've all felt like everything's against me. I just got to say again, he thought everything was against him when actually God was making everything for him, right, gang? And many times I feel like I just got to remember Lord, help me remember that when I feel like the whole world, everything is coming down on me, that God has a plan for my life. The story of Joseph 
is just an elongated story illustrating one verse from the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. For we know that all things work together for good to those who are called, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That one verse summarizes this huge story of Joseph's life. Everything was working together toward good. Joseph initially realized that, then his family realized that. Finally, dad said, okay, take Benjamin. So they made that trek, dangerous trek, six weeks back to Egypt. And there they were met by Joseph's personal servant. And he says, hello. He says, I have, uh, the master wants to see you. We're preparing a feast for you. And immediately again, they're freaking out. They can't receive the blessing. They're saying, well, wait, wait, wait. we just want to explain that. Well, they're talking to one another first and they're saying, you know, this is all a trap. They just want to skin in there and they're going to kill us and steal our donkeys. Now that's a big deal. Don't ever let your donkeys be stealed. Okay. <laughs> so they started to explain. We found this, our, our silver back in our sacks. We'd pay for a grain and we don't know how it got there. And please don't be mad at us. And see the father, Jacob had given them double the money. He says, take the money back to them that you found. Take more money to pay for more grain. And he said, take all these presents to the man as well. So they were explaining away, and Joseph's servant said, whoa, 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 wait. He actually used the Hebrew word, shalom, shh, hush, don't be so excited. I received your money, and the grain was paid for. Was that true? Yeah, it was true. Not the whole truth, but it was true. He didn't go on to say, and I put the money back in your bags. But he said, don't worry about it. I got your money. Everything's so they're wondering what on earth is going on. So they cleaned up and they go in and Joseph, well, they saw Joseph and they bowed down to Joseph twice. They bowed down to him. Then Joseph says, hey, I've got a banquet. Come and sit down at the banquet. So the banquet's prepared. But this is a crazy thing. Crazy thing is when they come in to sit down, they're the seats are all in proper order of their ages. The oldest to the youngest. It was unbelievable. How could this be? Nobody would have known that. In fact, Henry Morris, Christian scientist and a biblical commentator, he says there are actually 40 million possibilities of how you could seat 11 people. Did you know that? I didn't either. And I didn't check the math either. Uh, I'm just telling you, 40 million plus. So they are now thinking, this guy, Joseph, must be supernatural. He has got some kind of divine wisdom. We have no clue what's going on. And that freaked them out as well. And when they sat down at this banquet, guess what? Little brother Benjamin gets five times more food than they do. A test. Wouldn't you say? Joseph saying, okay, I'm going to bless. Father blessed me much more than them, and they hated me and were jealous of me. I'm going to see. Have they gotten over that? So little brother Benjamin, now the favorite of his father, he gives him five times, and he watches. What are they going to do? It? Nothing. 
nothing. They were completely okay with that. Joseph is saying, all right, that's a good sign. Well, there was still one last test that he wanted them to, uh, to undergo. And this was the test. And we see it here in chapter 44. And let's look at verses 1 through 12. And I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation because when we come to these longer narratives, longer pieces of, of uh, telling a story in the Bible, I think it just reads really smoothly and is uh, very clear. So I'll tell you what verse we're in if you want to be following in uh, your scripture. But just know I'm reading from most likely a different translation. Verse 1. When his brothers were ready to leave, Joseph gave these instructions to his palace manager. He said, fill each of their sacks with as much grain as they can carry and put each man's money back into his sack. Then put my personal silver cup at the top of the youngest brother's sack, along with the money for his grain. So the manager did as Joseph instructed him. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, chase after them and stop them. And when you catch up with them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup, which he used to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. Now, let's question immediately arises. Was Joseph using a silver cup predict the future? That would be kind of witchcraft. And uh, 350 years later, the law would condemn that. No. How well do we know Joseph? Very well, right? We know him very well by now. No, this is part of the ruse. This is part of Joseph's plot to have them think, oh, you know, this is Pharaoh. And, and by now they're already thinking, somehow, uh, this, he's next to Pharaoh. Somehow he knows more than anybody should know. So it's just part of a ruse and showing the importance of this cup. Verse six, when the palace manager caught up with the men, he spoke to them as he'd been instructed. What are you talking about? The brothers uh, said, we are your servants and would never do such a thing. Didn't we return the money we found in our sacks? We brought it back all the way from the land of Canaan. Why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If you find this cup with any one of us, let that man die. And all the rest of us, my Lord, will be your slaves. Well, that's fair, the man replied, but only the one who stole the cup will become my slave. The rest of you may go free. They all quickly took their sacks from the backs of their donkeys and opened them. The palace manager searched the brothers' sacks from the oldest to the youngest. And then, gang, the worst possible thing happened. Verse 12, and the cup was found in whose sack? Benjamin's sack. No, not Benjamin. Verse 13, when the brothers saw this, they tore their clothing in despair. Then they loaded their donkeys again and returned to the city. Verse 14, Joseph was still in his palace when, his, when Judah and his brothers arrived, and they fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph demanded. Don't you know that a man like me can predict the future? 
By this time, like I said, they probably thought that was true. Judah answered in verse 16, Oh, my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. Guilt hanging over their head. The Bible says, God says, I will wipe out your transgressions like a thick cloud. Transgressions are things that you willfully, deliberately do. You know they are wrong. That's what a transgression is. I will wipe out your transgressions like a thick cloud. He'll evaporate them and your sins I will remember no more. Amen. God can wipe away. He can blot out that cloud of guilt that's over your head. Now, let's read on going to verse 16. My Lord, we've all returned to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. No, Joseph said, I would never do such a thing. Only the man who stole the cup will be my slave. The rest of you may go back to your father's peace. Verse 18, then Judah stepped forward and he begins to plead for Benjamin's life. And he said, please, my Lord, let your servant say just one word to you. Please don't be angry with me, even though you are as powerful as Pharaoh himself. My Lord, now... This is Judah coming forward. Why is this so important, guys? Judah, he's coming forward, pleading for his little brother that is his dad's favorite son. Well, Judah was the one that when Joseph had been sent by Jacob to check out the brothers out in the wilderness to see if they were doing their job, Judah was the one who said, oh, here comes this dreamer, let's kill him. Judah was the one who said that about Joseph. Then Judah was the one that changed his mind. And he says, well, let's don't kill him. We could get more out of him. Let's sell him. That's what Judah said. Judah was like, he's worth nothing. And who cares what that would do to dad? And they have the audacity to go back to their father and they hand them this uh, Joseph's robe that they had dipped in blood. And they say, oh, dad, an animal tore him apart. We're so sorry. And they saw Jacob just wrecked, ruined by sorrow for years. And they were part of this hypocritical group that, oh, dad, we're so sorry. Oh, dad, we're so sorry. We know you love them so much. Oh, dad, you'll get over it. Oh, hypocrisy. But somebody's life has been changed in the last 25 years or so. Judah's life has been transformed. And I think that is so cool, you guys. The worst, the person who can do the very worst thing can change through the power of God and God's spirit. That's exactly what happened to Judah. Judah now is pleading for the favorite. And he's going to plead because he doesn't want to see his father hurt. What a transformation. Look at verse 19. My Lord, previously you asked us your servants, do you have a family or a brother? And we responded, yes, my Lord, we have a father who's an old man and his youngest son is a child of his old age. His full brother is dead. That's talking about Joseph. And he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him very much. He's not jealous of him anymore, right? And you said to us, bring him here so I can see him with my own eyes. But we said to you, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for his father would die. 
But you told us, unless your youngest brother comes with you, you will never see my face again. So we returned to your servant, our father, and we told him what you said. Later, when he said, go back again to buy us more food, we replied, we can't go unless you let Benjamin go with us. We'll never get to see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And he continues to tell Joseph, then my father said to us, as you know, my wife had two sons and one of them went away and never returned. Doubtless he was torn to pieces by some wild animal. I've never seen him since. Now, if you take his brother away from me and any harm comes to him, you will send this grieving white haired man to his grave. And so Judah pleads now to Pharaoh. And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without that boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving white-haired man to his grave. What a change, a change of heart. Judah continues to say, In verse 32, my Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. This is Judah. Judah. What a transformation. 20 years earlier, he was singing a different song. Now he's offering his life in the place of Benjamin's life. Now he's saying, there is no way I could ever see my dad's heart broken again. I can't be responsible for this. Now that's what Joseph needed to hear. That's what he needed to hear. He had tested him several ways. The last test, if you realize, was silver for life. They had sold Joseph for silver. Here he's saying, look, I'll keep Benjamin for silver. You can sell him basically to me for that stolen silver cup. They would not do that again. Amen? Things had changed. The brothers were different. Well, when he saw this, he could not control his emotions anymore. And he had to have everybody leave the room except his his family. Verse 1 of chapter 45 says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, verse two, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. He cried so loud. The Hebrew word is not to weep, you know. (laughs) This was a cry that could be heard throughout an entire palace. This was a cry that was so great that people hurried to Pharaoh to say, Joseph is crying, Joseph is crying. Joseph, what is the matter? Pharaoh even heard about it. He cried, and finally, when he gained his composure, 
The next words he spoke to them, look at verse three. And Joseph said to his brothers, and it's the first Hebrew words he said. It's the first words in Hebrew that he says to his brothers. And he says, Ani Yosef, Ani Yosef, I am Joseph. And the Bible says they were speechless. He's got to hate us. And I hate myself. I know there's times because I've had times when I absolutely hate myself for things I've done. How about you? I can't believe it. I hate myself. Of course, that's not going to help you overcome anything. It's not going to help you get your life straightened out at all. It's one of the traps that Satan has. He leads us into temptation. And then when we sin, he accuses us. The Bible calls him Satan, which in Hebrew means accuser. He accuses us of our sins. Never says, yeah, I'm the one who led you into it. He accuses us, heaps guilt upon us, and some of us are really susceptible to going the next step, and we just loathe ourselves. We hate ourselves. We're sad. We're despairing. Again, we're waiting for judgment. Look on. Look at verse 4. Oh, first in verse three, he says, since my father's still alive, but his brothers couldn't answer a word. Verse four, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And so Joseph, he's calling his brothers and say, come near to me, come close to me. I want to hug you. And the Bible says that they hugged each other and they started crying together. And listen to Joseph's words. He says, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold. You sold me, verse 5, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Guys said that's our response so often. And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Joseph is the only person in the Bible that is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. He's the only person in the Bible who is a perfect picture of Jesus Christ. Think about his love. Think about his grace. Think about his forgiveness. Think about this. He is the beloved of the Father, He's the one beloved son. He is sent from the father to his brothers, to be with his brothers, with a message from the father. They despised and rejected him. They sold him for silver. He was betrayed. Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Joseph for silver. They sent him away and they left him for dead. But... He was highly exalted. And Joseph sat at the right hand of the king. Joseph was given a Gentile bride. And there was fruit. There were children from that bride. And then there was a great time of tribulation, a famine. When at that time, Joseph's brothers saw who Joseph really was. He was revealed to him. They saw him. They bowed down to him. 
And they said, the Bible says it will be said of Jesus, they will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Oh, what have we done to you? And Jesus will speak kindly to them. The Bible says that they'll sit down at a feast prepared for them at his table. And then he's prepared a place. They will enter his kingdom with him. And there they will be provided for forever. I can't help but see a few pictures between Jesus and Joseph. How about you guys? It's pretty amazing. And there's more. There's even more. A perfect picture. But the most perfect thing is this forgiveness, this love, this unmerited favor. Never bringing up the past except to say, except to say, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me into Egypt. It was God's plan. I'm over that. I'm over that. This is God's plan. I'm exalted here for a purpose. I'm exalted to be your savior. No. Come on, come close to me. It's the word of Jesus Christ to every person here. He's not mad at you. He's saying, come here, come close to me. This whole time when you thought I was out to get you, I've just been setting you up to reveal myself to you at the perfect time, in the perfect place, in the chosen moment, and it all makes sense now to you. But you know, throughout their lives, they're still going to have a hard time they're still going to struggle with a little bit of guilt, like so many Christians. Throughout their life, Joseph is going to have to remind them, I'm not going to hurt you. Because they remember the bad things they did to him. And they think, how could he ever get over this? Surely we're going to get punished for our sins. And Joseph repeatedly has to tell you, what are you worrying about? I'm not going to hurt you. I'm never going to seek revenge against you. That's over. I'm here to bless you. And you know, brothers, sisters, gang, you might be struggling with that like Joseph's brothers. Thinking, well, this is great. I'm hearing this right now. But maybe in a few weeks or, you know, a couple months, maybe it might be a year. You think, well, maybe, maybe that's not true anymore. I'm just telling you, Joseph, our Jesus, he's saying, look, I'm not going to come after you. It's done. It's in the past. It's water under the bridge. It's forgiven. You talk to me about it. I say, what? What are you talking about? It's not in his mind anymore. The Lord says, I have cast all your transgressions, all your sins into the depths of the sea, and I remember them no more. Praise God for that. Amen. Let's pray. We are so grateful for Joseph and how this this man represents you, Lord Jesus. He went through so much. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was punished when he shouldn't have been. He was accused for things he had not done. And yet he bore with these things patiently. And you, Lord Jesus, like Joseph, were raised and now you seated at the right hand of the Father where you were praying for us and you were inviting us to come close to you because you want to hug us. You said, whoever comes to me, you will never, no, never cast away. So we come close to you right now despite our sin, our sadness, our anger at ourselves. We come to you 
you say, put those things down and you lift us up. And now you want to bestow more blessings than we could ever imagine upon us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you so much. i
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. The following program is called The God of Abraham. Hello everyone, my name is Terry from The God of Abraham. Last time, we looked into Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 11, where the angels entered Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot greeted them, and the people of Sodom tried to rape them. They lived by pursuing pleasure, and this was the reason why God destroyed the cities. They were not destroyed because of homosexuality, but because they didn't reject the sin of homosexuality and chased after it for pleasure. As 2 Peter chapter 2 says, they looked down upon God's law and did obscene things for their pleasure. The angels blinded the people of Sodom, who harassed Lot so that they couldn't find the door. Today we'll look at what happened afterwards from Genesis chapter 19 verses 12 to 38. It would be good for you to pause this program for a moment to read the verses and resume the program afterwards. In chapter 19, verse 12, the angels told Lot to take anyone who belongs to him out of here, for judgment will come. Here is Genesis chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. The outcry of the people before the Lord is so great that he has sent us to destroy this place. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, Hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. After listening to the angels, Lot told his family what he heard in order to save them. He hurriedly told the family to leave, but they thought Lot was joking. Although they had the chance to live, they were destroyed along with Sodom. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is a small version of our story of salvation. That land was filled with sin. Eventually, fire of judgment came upon the land that seemed good when Lot first saw it. Before the fire of judgment, God sent messengers to deliver the message of judgment, and He tried to get them out of the city. However, Not all the people who received the message were saved from destruction. Verse 15 says, With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot to quickly leave the city. The night had passed. Isn't it strange? The people gathered in the evening, and this is when everything started, but Lot still hasn't left the city. He was hesitant and indecisive. We can make two guesses regarding him. First, he didn't leave the city right away because his children didn't listen to his words. As a father, it's understandable that it was hard for him to leave. Another reasonable belief is that Lot's heart was in Sodom. Personally, 
I believe the second assumption is more reasonable because if he was delaying because of his children, according to the first assumption, then he would have made a request to the angels to save them. However, he doesn't make such an appeal. Instead, if we look at Lot's action thus far in the Bible, the second assumption seems more reasonable. When Lot separated from Abraham, what was the reason why he chose this region? This was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, so he chose this region because it was like the Garden of the Lord and the land of Egypt. Lot chose what looked good in his eyes. He chose the place where many people lived and the land was civilized. As we mentioned the previous time, Lot first lived in a tent just like Abraham near the city. However, at some moment, he entered the city and lived there. When he lived in the city, he ended his tent life and began a more settled life. Also, Lot ruled the region, and it shows how deeply involved he was in Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, there is something else we should think about. In Genesis chapter 14, his whole family was captured by the Babylon United Army and suffered greatly. However, he still lived in that land. When Lot's wife was let out of the city by the hand of the angels, she was told not to look back, but she looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. The idea that Lot delayed in leaving because of his regret toward Sodom seems more possible. The angels let Lot and his family outside the city. In chapter 19, verse 17, the angels said, Flee for your life. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. This was the angel's command, but in verses 18 through 20, Lot requested that he may flee to a city that seemed nearby since he might die while going all the way to the mountains. Then he named the city Zor, meaning small. Verse 23 says, The sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zor. The Jewish people understand the sunrise as salvation for God's people and destruction for the wicked. Verses 24 through 25 says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. It was total destruction. This is also a small example of the destruction on the last day. We often see in movies how the earth becomes destroyed in the future by nuclear warfare or some natural disaster, and a few people survive and live on. On God's day of judgment, no one will survive. There will be complete destruction on earth. At that time, only those who have received God's grace will not be destroyed along with this land and be led to salvation. As I briefly mentioned before, verse 26 says, Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus says, On the last day he returns, it will be like the days of Noah and it will be like the days of Lot. Then he tells them to remember Lot's wife. The story of Lot and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah are valuable 
because they tell us what is more important. In Luke chapter 17 verse 28, Jesus says, It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building are not bad things. They are necessities. However, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah during Lot's time only focused on those things. As I mentioned last time, they were only interested in bodily pleasure and filling their own need. Therefore, they didn't know judgment was coming and were destroyed. We live on earth, therefore we need to eat and drink, buy and sell, and plant and build. However, above all these things, we must live by thinking of heavenly things. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Lot avoided death by escaping to Zor. Verse 30 says he was afraid to stay in Zor. God was originally going to destroy Zor. That means sin was also prevalent in Zor. It was natural for Lot to be afraid since he probably thought God would destroy that place one day. Therefore, Lot and his two daughters left Zor and went up the mountain and lived in a cave. In the past, when Lot was together with Abraham, he didn't face any difficulties and had a lot of possessions. Now, he lost everything and is living in a cave. Lot's life became miserable through the wrong choice he made. However, his life became even more miserable. He gained sons through his two daughters. An unspeakable thing happened. Lot's two daughters explained the reason for their action this way. This is verse 31. One day, the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old. And there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. What the daughters did was incomprehensible. Many scholars believe that the people in the region avoided Lot. Years ago, when Lot entered Sodom and lived there, the king of Babylon attacked and the people went through hardship. This time, the city where Lot lived was burned to the ground. The people probably thought Lot was bad luck or someone who brought upon death. Therefore, no one would marry Lot's daughters. It may be safe to assume this. Either way, for whatever reason, Lot's two daughters believed they couldn't get married. They got their father to drink wine and got pregnant and had sons. Through Lot and his two daughters, two nations of Moab and Ammon emerged. Later on, the Jewish people had contempt towards Moab and Ammon for this reason. There are some people who think God hated Ammon and Moab for this reason, but this is not true. God did not hate them because of their birth. It's because they disturbed and troubled the Israelites who came out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 3 says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. However, there was a descendant of Moab who received God's grace and became God's people. Her name was Ruth. According to God's promise, she couldn't have become God's people. 
If you look at God's word carefully, it says no Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Ruth confessed to her mother-in-law Naomi, Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Therefore, she says she didn't belong to Moab and came before God, so God accepted her. It was God's grace. God gives salvation to those who call upon the name of the Lord. He doesn't deny them. The age we live in is very similar to the age Ruth lived in. Homosexuality and homosexual marriage has become a natural thing and it is spreading all over the world at a fast pace. People are consumed with eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. They are so devoted to these things as if they are going to live a thousand years. However, we know that the day of Jesus' return is near. Therefore, we must be ready. The message of the world's destruction has already been given to us through the Bible. We must live here on earth by being awake and looking at heavenly things. We must place our hope on eternal things and not on things that will disappear and be destroyed. Next time, we'll go through Genesis chapter 20 and look into Abraham's life again. We'll end God of Abraham here. I'll see you next week.
coming like the glory of the morning on the wave. He is wisdom to the mighty, he is succor to the brave. So the world shall be his footstool and the soul of time his slave. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.